0: The real job of a game designer is to connect the player's fantasies and your vision of the product together in a way that they work together to create a final product, right? And that's what makes a really amazing experience.
1: In this episode of Building the Metaverse with John Radoff, John sits down with Alexander Brazzi. Alexander is a design director, combat mechanics, and system designer. He has 16 years of game combat and game system design experience on World of Warcraft, League of Legends, Ori and the Will of Wisps, and two unannounced AAA projects for major studios. Let's jump into this fireside chat. All right. Welcome, Alex, to building the metaverse. Welcome back, everybody who's tuning into this. This is going to be an awesome conversation today because, Alex is someone I've gotten to know over the last year through some of the social audio platforms like Clubhouse and and really came to appreciate a lot of what you know about the industry and game design and creative leadership and and everything in between. So I wanted to use this opportunity to bring you on and talk about game systems and business models and all the things that are happening with game systems today. But I, I actually wanted to start a little bit with how you got into the game industry and like what was that first job
0: oh man wow that is a story it was was for a little game right (laughs) it was for a little game uh okay well i think we'll start with the little game and then my first visible game that anyone here has actually played (laughs) um so uh i lived a really fortunate upbringing um and i got to start working with computers back when i was five years old um And uh, it was when my grandmother brought one of her uh, IBM PS1s uh, to home. And so I would sit there and learn all the little commands and stuff, right? Super young. And my father was one of the first programmers over at IBM on mainframes and all this old tech. So we had one around the house, was a few years older. and, uh, how I got into games was actually, we had these magazines It was called three, two, one contact science magazine. And the very last six pages was literally Q basic code. And you would type that Q basic code or you'd play the little game. It would be like a mini game or, you know, move the arrow back and forth and shoot the little you know spaceship in the sky. Um, And uh, anyways, uh, one day, my father was part of this pilot program for this thing called uh, the Internet. Um, At that point, it was uh, uh, we were started by accessing through something called IBM Gopher, G-O-P-H-E-R. And um, yeah, that was before HTTPS was a thing. Anyways. Yeah, I remember um, Fast forward, we'll say a little bit of a year into that, Um, I was homeschooled uh, by my parents for various reasons, and so I had a whole lot of free time and a whole lot of computer time, and I found this little web game. It was called Zelda online. It was straight up. uh, They stole the pixel art from Zelda (laughs) three and then literally had this multiplayer space. It was like this free roaming space. We could walk around as link slash a sword and attack a baddie. That was it. That was the whole experience. You could pick up some heart containers, pick up some swords and a bow. Um, Anyways, and I was like, oh, this is so cool. What if I make my own custom art for this? Because they've clearly stolen all the art. They don't want to get in trouble. i got to help them get out of trouble. So I went in and repainted (laughs) Sprite palettes in Corel Photoshop, which is like photo, you know. Corel Photo Paint, which Mm -hmm. is like Photoshop, Mm -hmm. you know, two decades ago. Um, And I think they actually might still be around. It's ridiculous. Anyways, the story is wandering. Let me speed up a bit. Anyways, I actually then decided, well, you know, if they have all of these Zelda heads all over the place, I bet if I put a Yoshi head in there, no one will blink an eye. Sure enough, they didn't. So <laughs> I would made a full set of skins that I called the Dinos, who were just straight up Yoshi pixel art, you know, repatched on uh, these characters. Um, anyways, this got, then I sat down and I made like 15 little levels, like levels and said, hey, here's a whole bunch of levels that are not steals, rips from Zelda. And they're like, cool content. Thank you stuck it in a tree you'd walk into a tree if you walk to a certain spot in the tree it would open up and you'd go into the yoshi home or the dino home where all these yoshis were running around and um yeah so another uh a couple months go by and they reach out to me and be like hi we're going to be making a new version of our game the game was uh we're gonna be calling it growl online as in the holy growl online and we want to invite you to make content for us and i'm like oh <gasps> content okay now that sounds amazing what do you want me to do like we'll make levels and stuff like okay i can do that keep in mind i'm like 13 years old at the time and uh the way i get this message is through an email and they're like yeah okay awesome we're gonna start a new project new people and um how old are you by the way i'm like uh i'm 24 i just finished college (laughs) and they're like perfect all right here's an nda here you go um, but because I had, you know, literally been learning C++ for, oh my God, uh, probably three years at that point had been on ton in JavaScript, learned art and all of these different tools. By the time I was 14, no one could distinguish between me and, a, and a, like a, a crappy college student. So, um, all the communication right then was non-video. It was all IRC chat rooms. It was all text-based. So aside from me being a little emotionally irresponsible, it was fine. I spent three years on that project and then it finally crashed and burned under its own weight, though Growl Online is still running. The business model worked and so on. I was devastated. What an amazing
1: opportunity at 13 years old to start working on a game. Like, it, yeah. to me, it's like, who cares what the game is? Right? Like actually working with a team and getting to just have some goals and and work towards it. Like when I, I mean, I yeah. started making games pretty close in age to that. I mean, really, if you want to go back, I made stuff when I was like 10, but 13 is when I had my first game that people actually played, which yeah. is the
0: Space Empire game. And, uh, and but, I feel yeah. like
1: it sort of affected my whole life, right? It, like, it, to do it that
0: role. Yeah, and learning that thinking at that age really shapes your mind in a way that, you know, I, I mean, I was very isolated, right, being homeschooled. So I used to say, homeschooling is an intellectual accelerant and a social decelerant. Um <laughs> Yeah. I homeschool both my kids. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it wasn't originally the plan up until two years ago,
1: but it's kind of stuck.
0: Well, you know, get, I don't know how old they are, but if they're before 12, it's probably fine. But after you need to get them out with other kids or they will not learn all those social cues. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I still haven't figured them out. Whatever. Anyways. Um, <laughs> all right. But the, st- but the story, no. you okay. are you sure? I, I'm, some days I wonder. <laughs> um, all right. So the story you want to hear though, is, um, I went off to college after being devastated, right? Believing I had failed as in my one shot as a designer. Cause this project didn't succeed. And, um, went off to college, uh, with a plan to learn Japanese, to be a Japanese English translator. Cause Ted Woolsey had final Fantasy six was just the coolest guy in the world to me. Uh, and while I'm there I end up taking a CS degree and worked at a little company called Microsoft uh, it's an internship on this project called Windows 7 you know which was supposed to be the big upgrade that was for the last great Windows they said um, <laughs> anyways uh, while I was there a friend of mine was like hey I'm, I guess I used to play StarCraft with this guy he's like I just got into the World of Warcraft um, you know team and I want to send you an alpha to check it out I'm like an MMO, I hate MMOs. EverQuest and all this, they're so gross and they take forever and they're really boring. He's like, that's exactly why I want you, because you will complain and uh, I moan about everything you hate. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyways, um, all right, let me speed this up. Anyways, I was there, NDA'd, doing all this stuff, and one of the developers, Sam Lantinga, released the UI modding kit, right? Like, here's all of our UI code, change it, and tell us what you think should be better. I lit up like a kid in Christmas. Worked with a team of seven other people, made this add-on package called Cosmos UI. And Uh um, fast forward, after burning out at Microsoft, I went down and slept on a beach house in uh, San Clemente when someone said, hey, will you come to lunch with us? And um, for better or for worse, it turned out, to be um, Jeff Kaplan, Tom Chilton, and Rob Pardo, who i had asked, would you guys give me advice on what it means to be a designer? And so we talked about what was the game and how was it going and what would I change and what wouldn't I change? And they're like, yeah, why don't you just, you're answer, you know, you're, you don't have a lot of development experience, but you can program and uh, you seem to have the right answers. So why don't you come and try it out with us? And if it doesn't go well, no Did big deal. Did you know
1: you were interviewing for a job? No.
0: <laughs> Um, in that conversation I, I was thought I was there with these I was so lucky <laughs> to be sitting with these three guys being able to just ask them what does a designer do and oh actually I think holidays would be better if you do this and learning actually do you want to hear about the trick question Rob Pardo set up for me in the interview you yes look? you do okay <laughs> alright so um, you know I'm a, I'm a pretty agreeable guy in a lot of situations and if, I think, don't think something matters too much like yeah that makes sense right and he, came, he was like, what games you played recently? I'm like, well, I played this and this and Shadow of the Colossus. He's like, oh, Shadow of the Colossus. Such a highly reviewed and super successful game. You must have loved it, right? And I sat there and I'm like, actually, I didn't. I thought it was over uh, promoted on art. The mechanics were really simple in a puzzle game. And while it wasn't a bad game, it was a very empty game world. And I just felt lonely and sad playing through this game. I don't think I would someone want to play a lonely, sad game like that. Um. And he was like, "But it was reviewed so well on this all this reward." I'm like, "I don't care about the rewards. Like, where's the gameplay? Where was the combat? Where was the, all anything beyond climb a guy, stab him in the head?" Right? Um, and he was like, "Oh, okay." Anyways, I thought I would bombed the interview because I literally told him <laughs> to go fuck himself, right? Um, and uh, and so I later found out at the end of you know the interview, they're like, "We'll call you in a couple of days and just you know get in touch." And that's when they sent me the, "Hey, we want you to come work with us. Are you free in three days?" I'm like. Uh, Sure, I guess I'm not leaving town. Um, And uh, yeah, and so when I came in, um, I was uh, working under Jeff Kaplan directly immediately and uh, eventually moved over to one of his subordinates. And one day when he was really frustrated with me because I was the kid who would go and I would break everything. I'd be like, I don't know if we need to stick to this rule and break it and see if it worked or not, right? Because that's how I learned by breaking things. Um, He got so frustrated, he's like, you know... I don't know if we should have, we would have hired you if it wasn't for the fact that Rob liked liked you so much because you wouldn't stand you wouldn't uh, bow basically buckle in front of him. <laughs> we our relationship repaired a little bit after that, but um, you know I always look back at that as one of those uh, one of those character moments. Like you have to just be where where you are and also show respect to other people's positions, right? If you can do that, you're in a pretty good place to interact as a designer. So
1: what did you learn from working on World of Warcraft? I know that's like a terrible question because I'm asking you to encapsulate uh, years mm. into some headlines. But, but what, what do people need to know about that? Because that was a mm. transformative game across the industry. Interesting yeah. because you talked also about like yeah. you thought MMOs were boring. And then you got to work on World of Warcraft yeah. and World of Warcraft... As far as I can tell, is still going pretty well. Yeah. You know, whatever. What is it? Tw- nearly twenty years in on this game now, oh which my- is
0: yeah, almost like, twenty. How many years. games have done that? Not many, right? Um, and it's interesting, right? Because a lot of WoW's continued success is as much the gravity as it is the content, right? The gravity, well, people and social connections and a space for social connection, right? That's kind of like what keeps people there. Um, you asked what I learned, and you know. Um, if I had to describe Growl as like my design infancy, um, working in World of Warcraft was like my design adolescence, right? You kind of go from a tantrum throwing, you know, wild, reckless kid to learning what it takes to be a, an adult inside a professional setting. Um, and so aside from like the professional things of like, hey, how to how to not get too attached to your ideas or how to argue with people or how to take feedback, right? Those core fundamentals. Um I think what one of the biggest things I had to learn was just how important business model changes the experience and framework for how you approach creating content Um, and even the technology for a game. Right. And I mean, I've been super fortunate here to live through four generations of business models. Right. We started with the coin op stuff was literally pay to play. Then it went into, you know, take home gaming stations. Right. You buy a disc Mm -hmm. and you play it to um, the subscription model, right, where, hey, now you pay sustained fees to maintain, keep gaining, to retain access to these games, to the free-to-play movement, right, which is basically, hey, come and play with us, but when you appreciate us and want to show that reciprocation voluntarily, here are many ways to do that to as much degree as you want, and now we're experimenting with these models of maybe the model is backwards and and investors and... um, You know, uh, advertising people should be giving you uh, resources for your time, right? Which is just like, how far can we turn that knob? Um, and I think that learning to respect just how many dependencies there are, even at a, you know, a lot of people look at blizzard and these big companies and think of them as this untouchable monoliths, right? But they're not, they're just groups of humans doing the best they can. And, um, or not always the best they can, but that's a different topic. (laughs) <laughs> um, but the thing I had to understand was that, hey, the importance of not doing everything you can on every single patch and instead pacing out your growth and opportunities because you're going to have a sustained business model, which means the next patch, the next content needs to be able to you know be 10 percent, 5 percent better. And if you keep that steady progression up, the content will be feeling better and you'll be 200 percent better experience wise after three, four or five years. But even if you do that every single time, people will still have hit on ennui and burnout, and it has almost nothing to do with the designers. It has almost nothing to do with anything but the fact that the lifestyle of the players and the game no longer are in sync, and that you need to make it okay for people to walk away. Um, and that was the lesson of World of Warcraft, right? It was such an all-obsessive, all-consuming game that when League of Legends came out, it was like, here, we'll go and play this. But League of Legends was was the secret Moonlight game. It was the game you played between patches, right? It was hmm. something you'd play when you were a little bored or wanted to change a pace. And that, I think, actually led to big more of League of Legends success, whereas like, wow, was very much like how fast we produce content in Are You In or You Out, you know? Um, well, let, let's let's hold on League of Legends
1: for a moment. We're sure. going to definitely talk about it. Um, spoiler alert, that was the next game that you worked on it, for people that weren't aware that that was coming. So we're going to have a whole learning experience around that. If we turn back to the time that you were working mm. on World of Warcraft, like and right. I was a Cosmos UI user, by the way. So, oh, I guess I'm, awesome.
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry so, I got bloated. That was my that was my first <laughs> lesson before I joined Blizzard. You cannot approve every feature pushed Put in every push request. <laughs> Including your own. Well, so
1: a couple of things that come to mind, though, like just the idea of creating moddable elements to a game, whether mm. they're in the game or around the game, opens up this really interesting ecosystem of people like you who started to expand yes. on it and think about things a little bit differently. Yes, as a player, but more like starting to apply some design mindset to here's how I'd actually prefer to be interacting with this game, the way I actually want to play it i think that's interesting
0: for game companies actually to learn from like what are yeah. the opportunities to create that oh and it was such an important part of my own development because it got to take these technical skills and put them through the grinder of, he- of player feedback without the company burning money or resources on that i got to grow other people um actually do you, have they crowdsourced
1: heard of- development essentially
0: for free yeah <laughs> yeah but um actually do you know uh do you know Curse Gaming? Um, of course sure okay well curse gaming um was uh just a, a fan website for a, a guild essentially mm-hmm. and this one guy named Zhu who was uh Vizhou, Vizhou? I can't, I never got his name quite right uh came to me he was like hey I want to put host our binaries on this my guild's website I'm like yeah sure we need we were dying for hosting right we had so many people downloading I, my band like my my server was dead thoughtbot was burning down it was just crazy and they put it on this site and, they, and that led to Curse gaming making their own mod delivery system which then escalated them to a point where there's so much revenue and traffic they became their own business hubert then <laughs> launched it into literally a multinational entity and you know that entire sector exists not because of me but because of his him seeing that opportunity and identifying it you know um and that's why I think modding. And now
1: there's this whole other business overwolf that's taken Curseforge and yeah. they're trying to create modding economies now around games. So super yeah. interesting that it all got started with this kind of like modding, whether it's UI or uh, I, Minecraft modding is another big kind of yeah. explosion
0: that happened around that. I'd actually like to focus on the human aspect for a moment. It happened because of a favor being asked and someone with hmm. a need. And as someone with an opportunity working together. And I think that's where most business really takes off, right? Um, a, a financial advisor of mine, uh, kind of a financial mentor, once said, if you want to be a success Alex, get between a person and their problems, and then they'll push the resources to you and then you make their problem go away, right? Um, and I think that a lot of friendships are built from that and a lot of deep relationships are built from that sort of trust and opportunity, right? Um, you and I, we were bored in a room and chatted together, right? And now we're here. Um, so I, I really want the message to people listening to this to be that these opportunities are always existing. It doesn't matter that there's a giant in a space. It doesn't matter that there's some titanic amount of support for modding or not, right? If you can see the opportunity, the need, and resolve it for people, you will make you will move forward. If you're moving solely, though, from like, hey, I have this thing I want to do, then you're an artist, a craftsman, and maybe it'll succeed or maybe it mm. won't, you know? hmm. I mean, you've had that experience with your own stuff.
1: Yeah, 100 um, percent. I mean, with so I developed a game called Star Trek Timelines you did. I had I did. I, I had a particular idea of the way the game was supposed to be when I started it. It was nothing like that by the time we shipped it. It actually turned out that we rebooted the game design five times. Yep. It was like almost like a CCG-style game in the beginning, and there was sort of a card-like object by mm. the end, but it wasn't really cards anymore. It was much more about like storytelling and all this other stuff. But my learning experience from that, personally, is that game development is really about shots on goal a lot of the time. Like, studios yeah. frequently just run out of runway before they can fully explore the problem. And I think it's really important first and foremost, to know your audience and understand what they want and the game system to connect with that audience. In my experience, that's the piece that can evolve or change or even be rebooted. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, it's hard to swap out an audience though. And also D teams have particular knowledge that they bring to the table about specific audiences, but getting married to a design I've learned is, uh, recipe for disaster actually the game that probably sunk the most dollars and the most time had a design that really didn't change the entire way we kind of executed against a blueprint and and didn't quite hit hit the mark but star trek timelines where we did you know five major evolutions now Mm -hmm. interestingly enough you brought up the human aspect the team dynamic stuff i remember one of the Really super talented technical lead, technical lead slash creative leads on the game. At the end, he was he came to me and he was like so mad. He's like, you know, we worked on this game. Eighty percent of the stuff I ever made for this didn't even get into what we shipped. And he was just sort of mad at the time. And and to be truthful, like. Like we didn't even know if the game was going to work like it did work. It was successful. We had like two weeks of cash left and then we shipped it and it started making like fifty thousand dollars a day. And we're like, oh, I guess we're going to get to keep doing this for a while. The game that that guy also then worked on where practically everything he ever worked on. Got into the end product was not that successful. Not his fault, by the way. I'm not trying to say this guy was wrong, but the way we chose to approach that project was this huge monolith with lots of features that just had to get created and uh, didn't work in that case.
0: Yeah, I I really love that term shots on goal, right? Because sometimes you're just missing the mark and you're not connected between... Like, I like to say that the designer's real job is not just to take his idea and bring it to life, right? That's the, the, what do you call it, the... Oh, God, there's a term for this, the uh, the savant myth, right? The real job of a game designer is to connect the player's fantasies and your vision of the product together in a way that they work together to create a final product, right? And that's what makes a really amazing experience. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that there's a balance between, you know... Leaning into the places where you need to just figure out figure out a space, and they just don't do it. Right? They get scared. They lean into what's comfortable. I deal with creative directors who do this all the time. They want to make another FPS because that's what they know. They don't want to introduce, you know, things like spell break, right? Which is like, oh, spagic and you know FPS mechanics, whatever. Um, and you know, it's it's tough because it takes a humility to understand that you are not, even if you're the creative director, you're not smart enough. And you need to let other people go and iterate in chaos for a while and then come back with what they've learned. It might only be two or three little things, but those gems you add in and plug in and you pull the rest out and then you plug the new ones in. Um, And instead, what they often will do is take a feature that's working and effective and iterate on that 16, 17 times because it's their safe zone. It's where they're comfortable. It's what they feel safe doing, right? And now sometimes it's worth it's worth taking of something really important, like the questing system, let's say in a world of Warcraft is a vital system. The, you know, the uh, ranked system in League of Legends worth churning over and over and over again. But so often if you're churning for the wrong reasons, right, because it's what you're comfortable working on, you're not actually discovering what's going to make your game joyful.
1: Mm -hmm. This is going to be a very revealing conversation now. Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm I'm thinking back again to games that I've worked on, and I love the word humility that you used. Yeah. What I always tell people now who are thinking about getting in the game industry, and I kind of listen to them for a bit mm-hmm. and I assess their personality. I'll say I'll tell them that humility is something that you will learn from the game industry <laughs> for mm-hmm. sure. If yeah. you don't have it now, you're going to learn it because there's no way to be in this industry and not make a bunch of mistakes. Like I. Yeah. You know, I so I got very, very lucky with Disruptor Beam, my game studio that built mobile games. The first game I took, you know, under a million dollars of investor capital and turned it into a game that you know, 10 million plus people played, which was Game of Thrones Ascent, and then used that to convince people to give me a little bit more money to do a Star Trek game. And Star Trek was willing to license it to me because they looked at Game of Thrones yeah and I put a forecast together, which was to do sort of x amount of revenue that I thought it would do, and people were like, Yeah, that's great.' It like then we're happy if if you do that. Mm. turned out I like double the amount of revenue hey, so they but, must have been
0: really upset about that how dare you
1: overshoot your mark well but here's what here's what happened here's mm. yeah that was good and if we had just sort of stopped there and ridden off into the sunset it would have been wonderful okay then people started saying john you're some crazy game genius who like outperforms um. his forecasts let's give you way more money And you build the thing that's going to be ginormous. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm down for that because Mm. I was kind of believing I believed Mm. in myself at that time. And I forgot in the next game what had made Star Trek. There were actually a bunch of mistakes made with that. But of course, one of them was the shots on goal aspect. Mm -hmm. Like the initial idea wasn't necessarily the most brilliant idea that we should have gone over the finish line with we should have given ourselves some space somehow to explore other things around the narrative and that audience for that game but anyway it it cost me a lot but the the end is okay because we ended up taking the technology we built for all these games and turning it into something that hundreds of people are building games on now so no regrets but a lot of learning experiences from that looking back at world of warcraft just to pivot away from the humility peace though, okay. which, which, can, uh,
0: which is fun to talk okay, about. Sure. Can I, can I just say one thing about humility? Cause I, I one thing I just want to say yeah. to the audience before Go we ahead. move off of it, a lot of people hear humility and they think shame, they think guilt, they think regret, right? And it's actually humility is about under, just understanding that, you are not at the center of the, of the craft and that it's not about making anyone else feel bad about the state they're in. It's about being able to put yourself to the side and say, where does the state, what do we need to do a little bit better and take steps in that direction, even if it's what you may have disagreed with in the past. And that's the true humility, right? That's It's not about shame. It's not about beating yourself up. It's not about being, oh, I'm so awful, right? That's useless. It's completely useless energy. Instead, just like, all right, we've made a mistake. I understand that I've made a mistake here. And by the way, when you say to someone, hey, I've made a mistake. I did not make the right call here. Let's work together to make a better call. They will trust you more. They will trust you so much more than if you defend yourself or woe betide yourself. So, all right, let's move on.
1: No, I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Alex. Um, but you know, maybe con- kind of continuing the theme at the time you mm-hmm. were at world of Warcraft. Sure. There was a MMORPG gold rush going on. There were a lot of teams building MMORPGs and a lot of really talented people working on them. And, I'm not going to say there were zero successes. There, there were some, I think, modest successes and some things that lasted. But by and large, it was practically a winner-take-all market for mm. World of Warcraft at that time. Why do you think that is? What, what did those teams or those products not have that, that, that didn't capture that sustainability in the business that, that Blizzard was able
0: to achieve? Oh, that's a great question. I love it. Um, so there's three layers. Um, the first one is that first to market hits the gravity well, right? Um, you are playing something and talk to your friends about it. They come and play with you, too, um, because let's just rip away some of the facade of World of Warcraft for a moment. World of Warcraft was a chat room first and foremost, the chat room mm-hmm. where you could talk to other people based on locality based on common goals, parties, or upon long-term goals, guilds and you know guild communities. And this changes the nature of how you look at it. So if you look at it as a social space first, and then what is the function of the game? The game is to give you a reason to be in a common space consistently— such that you develop these social bonds, develop trust in other people, and achieve these shared goals. It doesn't matter if that's, hey, let's go kill that fur bog for 30 seconds, and then we'll both loot our mineral ore on the other side, or if it's as complex as let's form an organization, set up a guild, and become the top in the world, right? It's about human alignment. So one of the things they did really well early on is they transferred over a lot of those existing ecosystems, these existing gravity centers of guilds, from EverQuest, that they had trust in to come and try the game, right? That was the first step. Uh, The second was that they had a massive amount of trust built up from Warcraft 3 and StarCraft, right? Which meant they got a whole bunch of fresh eyes who had never touched the space to come in. Finally, they didn't have a lot of barriers for people coming in and trying the experience that existed for classic MMOs. So all of that stuff pulled the walls down. Let people come in and then kept them in the space long enough to get that gestalt, right? And that magic, right? The excitement of seeing someone, the excitement of needing help and struggling and having someone help you. Okay, now let's talk about the competitors. Wow was a 10-year development cycle. I don't think people realize it. They saw that three-year period, you know, where it surged out of nowhere and was from beta after beta, right? And was like, do, 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 do. No, there were seven years of pain before that. And a lot of that, you know, um, I remember sitting down and I don't think a lot of people realize this. The original design document for World of Warcraft wasn't Rob Pardo, wasn't Jeff Chilton, wasn't any of their famous name. You know, it's a guy named Eric Dodds. And maybe you know the name Eric Dodds, but most people don't know that Eric Dodds was the guy who was also behind Hearthstone. And Eric is one of those guys who would sit down, compile problems and simple solutions and a few fantasy-sparking ideas and let that sit, right? And I went through and I read through his doc, and 80% of what he'd put there was actually in the game because it was about a combination of feeling, of purpose, of, you know, hey, core questing, of collecting resources and crafting, and not this doc that was—it was probably a good 20, 30 pages, but— it was this document of, hey, what are you supposed to be doing? Not how are you going to deliver it? Not what is every single detail meant to be? And that's what can drive people and inspire people because that's kind of a, a leadership spark, right? I don't need this is the goal. How do how do we do it? Are we crossing the river by a bridge? Are we building a boat? You can let other people decide that piece, right? Um, and that's important, right? That lets others fill in with their own identity, their own purpose, their sense of creativity, right? Um, so. That I think is kind of one of the secret pieces that a lot of people don't see about World of Warcraft, as well as the immense amount of time throwing away work. Goldshire was redone like five times, right, throughout that massive slow pain period, and the ramp up through content was probably in the last two and a half years of development, right. Everything before that was figuring out their model, making it easier, making it accessible, making it functional, until they found that heart of fun, which was Goldshire Westfall, and said, "Now we're going to, re- can we scale this?" All right. Competitors came in. They're like, cool. We have this working blueprint for an amazing experience. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to put our higher tier art on it. We're going to put our uh, our, uh, you know, different veneer on it. Right. The different theming. Um, What was the one that was all about spies and Illuminati and actually lasted for a little bit longer than the others?
1: Um, I'm losing. It was a fun con game is what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was like the Conan, right? I'm gonna take a big, big famous name and put it on top of the label. Um, make it R rated. Yeah, make it R rated, make it right. And they all kept trying to come at this space thinking that the product is what made it succeed. No, the product was good enough to make the social circle succeed. The moments within the game reinforced, reinforced the community and kept mm. people going. So instead, what people would do is they do the night day thing. Oh, a new one came out. We'll go and play it together, eat up all the content, which was made in two, three, maybe even four years. When They just couldn't compete with the content that was made by a team that had this trust built up, this community locked into it. And was continuously pushing forward on top of what, I'm going to be honest, guys, I have seen the source code for World of Warcraft. I have worked in the editor. The original, wow, it was a rickety, amazingly thrown together piece of, um, uh, I don't even want to say crap because that's almost a dissident insult to that. Um, <laughs> But like this, there's, they've spent years overhauling that, right? It was written in MFC or something like that. Originally it was like uh, web tools, like windows web tools. Like it was so unportable. It could only work inside the building. It could only work if you were directly plugged into the database that everyone else was at the same time, right? It was n- completely unscalable, completely unsustainable. And people just put blood, sweat and tears into working around, okay. To place one NPC in the game, which was my job for a very large portion of my second year in World of Warcraft, you had to click to open the region, to click which uh, spawning group. You had to then click to make a table of enemies. You had to then assign the, cla- the character type You then had to set the spawn timer, and then you clicked one point into the world. Then you repeated this every single time. It was about a minute to place one entity in the world. All right. Year in Burning Crusade, which was the middle of my second year, someone came in and said, what if we gave you the ability to copy and paste all of a sudden it was like 10, you know, 5, 10 seconds to make entities, you know, Um, and it sounds silly to describe that something as functional as copy and paste didn't exist in year one, but it didn't. And so I can't imagine that if they had seven years of work building up what was functional technology, servers, and so on, that anyone else was in a better state, right? Even if you poached a couple of engineers, there's simply time and energy to building up tools and technology to make it possible to make content at a certain velocity. So no one won on content. No one else kept up with content let alone beat them at content, even if the quality of content, like Conan's starter experience was devastatingly better than any starting experience in World of Warcraft, just period. It was it was it had a voiceover and elegant cinematics and cutscenes, Right. But it didn't have the heart. It didn't have the legs.
1: Yeah, well, I didn't realize, by the way, that you were going to help fill people in on Beamable and problems we solve and the basic oh, yeah. productivity problems of of, of game companies. Oh. that's that's what we do. Okay. over here at Beamable is to, is to give those other competitors a shot at having caught up by yeah. not getting them mired in that
0: stuff. Okay, but you, that really you can, you can send my paycheck uh, to. <laughs> <laughs> but, the,
1: but the interesting thing there, though, that I mean, Blizzard just had enormous runway mm. for projects that they chose to invest in. So in some ways that you had the luxury of not having yeah. super amazing tooling, because if it took a long time, you also had a lot of runway, even though I'm sure yeah. that it was super frustrating, um, you could do that. And then all these other competitors are emerging who definitely didn't have that much runway, didn't have the deep pockets, had to just get to market faster, and then shipped products that you know, didn't have as much content that people would play through rapidly. But I think that's a really interesting takeaway in that it's the social ecosystem of the game mm-hmm. that was first and foremost,
0: and then building everything around it. Yeah. Okay. And, so- and I think that's so important to remember that you building games atop a human network, no matter what game it is, even if it's a single player game, that's upon a network of one.
1: So then people started spending time on another game. League of Legends. Presumably, some of them were playing Dota or something before that. Yeah, like, Dota, so, Aeon of Legends. Yeah,
0: you, know. um, you know, a few others. Oh man. Uh, okay, you out. You want the league story now? So. Um, so how did that happen? Right. Oh, man. Okay, so I told you about this guy I worked with. His name was Tom Catwell, and uh, we played StarCard together when I was 13 years old, and he was at MIT, and so when I applied to MIT, I was like, Tom, help me learn how to apply to make applications in places. And he actually was working on an indie game a couple of years later, and so when he did that, I actually was trying to mod his own indie game before it had actually launched to see if how scalable their tools were anyways the game was called uh ever strife or strife shadow strife shadow and it was really great multiplayer had no single player and utterly bombed because the market for rts was single player audience but um we built a lot of trust through that communication so he invited me to world of warcraft alpha and then um bailed on blizzard to go and get his mba because he wanted to he wanted to move up in the world he didn't want to be a line designer right and um at some point, uh, these guys at this investment firm he was working at reached out to him and were like, hey, we heard you used to be at Blizzard. You know, would you mind consulting on uh, this title that, you know, my friends want to go work on? And he was like, sure. And so he was doing what I do now, which is uh, business consulting, right, where someone brings you in for X hundred dollars an hour. You basically give them a whole lot of hard facts and, and hugs and tell, wish them the best. Right. Um, and uh, he was looking at this game and he was like, oh, Execution is super crafty, but they've got they're listening. Like that's the big thing when you're a consultant. Do the, does the team listen to you? The second is do they make the right decisions? And he's like they're making a lot of the right decisions. They've got the right kind of backing, and they have the right they've got the right ideas. So we kept working with them, and uh, this was a game called. Um, Oh, before, I forgot what it was called before. It was called League of Legends, but um, it was—let uh, me just describe it. It was a dark Candyland-themed game. You were in a scary, spooky forest, and you were playing a little girl named Annie, uh, running through, shoot, killing minions, and eventually could summon her teddy bear to help her push the lane, right? There were a couple of their champions, Ash and a couple others at this point. And I remember because he and I were roommates at this point in time. He'd gone off to Kellogg and then come back to Irvine, and so I was like, Hey, let's be roommates. Cool best room i'd ever had bar none um and uh anyway so he would uh he basically said hey i'm gonna stop consulting with these guys i'm actually not good i'm bored with them i'm like dude you make so much money consulting why are you doing like i don't know i just really believe that if they're gonna hit esports right i'm like esports that's crazy talk the only esport is like uh counter strike and even then right it's hard to watch <laughs> he's like well they they really believe that we can make a game that's good to watch i'm like i'll oh, bullshit i'll believe it when i see it well he's like we'll come to my desk and um so he actually sat me down with their prototype of what this whatever this was called way back in the day um which by the way a fun fact for those of you in the audience uh legal legends was built on the engine for big mother truckers i'll let you guys google that and find <laughs> out about that game. um Anyway, so he sat me down, and uh, he's like, did you ever play that mod? I'm like, I played it a couple times, but it didn't quite click, and it was really complicated, and apparently people yelled at me for not killing my own minions, and he's like, good, here's what we're fixing. (laughs) Um, And so he would actually bring me in, because I was a few years into Blizzard at this point, to interview people he was interviewing for his company and grill them on WoW stuff because he hadn't played WoW recently. And so um, like a year and so in, he pulled me aside. He's like, we're making this champion. He's going to do card dealing, but I'm just missing something If something essential and I can't figure it out. Let's just talk it out. We jammed out what would uh, be twisted fate um, over the dinner one evening, right? And I was like, hey, what if you had actually the numbers from ace to one or ace to ace to king, and it would change the effect for what happens when they dealt? And he's like, oh, well, that's cool. But let me give it to one of my guys. I think it was Stephen DeRose and have him simplify it. And then it became, you know, single target mana regen, uh, AOE pulse or stun. And I'm like, that's great, right? Anyways, so I was working on League before I was working on League, Right. And um, so, anyways, so I was at Blizzard and uh, many years have gone past. I interviewed with Riot once and sat down with Brand, uh, Brandon Beck and Mark Merrill. And this is kind of an embarrassing story. It's actually one of those uh, hu- uh, not humiliating, but humbling moments where he was sitting at the table and it was Ryan Scott, uh, Mark Merrill and Tom Cadwell. And this interview softball, all I had to do was just be friendly and I would have gotten the job. And uh, at some point, Mark just was checked out. We were in designer land. He wasn't even paying attention. He was just like flipping through his phone. And I'm like, hey, do you want to share with the rest of the class what you're reading there? And he looked up, raised his eyebrows at me, sat down the phone and talked to me. And, um... And uh, yeah, so I was like, all right, whatever. So cool, I got his attention. Now he'll respect me more, right? Well, after that, um, he went to Tom. He was like, what the fuck? Who would, I wouldn't say that to anyone I was in the middle of conversation with, let alone someone I was interviewing with. Don't hire that kid, he's too too cocky. Um, And so I didn't get the job. Uh, And then Tom pulled me aside. He's like, hey, I just want you to know you, Passed all the design parts, but you did this. Um, And by the way, he was responding to texts because we're about to sell the company to a company called Tencent, which is going to massively fund us. And so he was replying in real time about paperwork that had to be done. So you don't necessarily know what someone's life situation is. Be careful. Why are you calling someone out like that? It's just rude. Um, Anyways. Um, so a few years later, um, I got fired from Blizzard after having an argument with uh, Tom Chilton about the importance of PVP and its you know, place in the ecosystem. I felt like we were burning too many resources on PVP relative to making innovations in PvE. PBE. We had a bit of a, an argument in his office, and I thought it was fine. Next day, I got pulled into a meeting, and he, and he was sort of like, I was like, hey, here's what I want to do and why. And he's like, you know what? I'll speak quiet. The adults are going to talk right now around the table, and I'm like... <laughs> I was pissed. So later that day, I got on some forums. We had, And one of the things I had started doing as a class designer was like every designer had like their people they would send emails to privately about their classes. Well, I had set up a small, you know, community, well, built a small community relationship with the community on a private forum. And so I would just throw stuff to them and be like, hey, here is what I'm thinking of doing. What do you guys think? And so on. And get I bounce ideas off before I came out. Um, Well, one day, someone complained that some ability was too weak, and I literally was like, dude, I don't have... One, that ability needs a nerf, and two, I don't have the political capital to burn on just keeping an ability overpowered just because you think it is, right? I was pissed from that conversation. I took it out on a player. That guy got upset and then copied and pasted my message from those forums to a public set of forums, and then that snowballed to the WoW forums, and then that was just a community PR disaster. Next day, I was brought in, and they were like, and the Greg's dude was like, well, Alex, we're going to let you go over this one. Um, and so I, I, I was convinced my career was over, right? I was like, I fucked up. I had all of this great work I put into Warlock and it's going to get torn apart by people who don't understand it, whatever. Um, but I was so I was like, you know what? Enough, enough design. Design's over. Why am I a designer? What am I doing? I'm going to go deliver pizza and get back to where I belong, right? Because I was shit belief in myself at this point point. and uh, I was literally in line sitting there filling out the application to go deliver pizza so I could pay rent this next month because Blizzard gave me no severance they were literally like done and um, and I get the phone call from Cattle he's like dude I read your post yeah um, I don't know why they would can you over that That's but I want you writing that sort of shit to our players and calling them out on our forums will you come and do that with me I'm like sure And so I went in, I interviewed with Mark again. He's like, So, if you learned your lesson at least a little bit, I'm like, a little bit, but I'm not all the way there yet. He's like, Okay, well, we're going to help you get the rest of the way there. And the um, guy named uh, Chris Tom and a whole bunch of others helped me with public communications and stuff like that. But, um, and then I ended up on uh, League of Legends, which was, you know, uh, frankly, one of the best teams I worked with in development history. Just great people, thoroughly passionate. And I got to learn so much going from like, Hey, how do we build games when we have this constant flow of money and just build content, build content, build content to instead, how do we craft content that's uniquely targeted at experiences for different types of players? How do you, mm. right? Um, like one of the things on Warcraft, like you didn't work on a class unless you were passionately into it or close enough to it that, you know, you could do work on it and be trusted by those people who were so intensely covetous of that character. On League, there was 120 characters when I started. You couldn't be that precious, but you needed to find unique niches. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with League, right? League's model was play our game and buy skins if you like it. Right. And I didn't understand how that could possibly function until I saw it in action. I understood that there's that human reciprocity that is innately in most of us that says, I'm going to go out and play this thing and then be grateful. And then here's something I want and I'm going to pay you for it. And it helps fund it. And hu- people do that. They do it all the time and they feel at peace with it because you're not bullying them into paying like a lot of those pay to win games that are super popular in other countries. Um, and so I had to relearn a whole lot of the approaches that I took to design, um, design culture, philosophy, um, and even public communications, right? Cause Hey, the way I communicated all of a sudden would it have not only a, sure, there was a little bit of drama at blizzard over, you know, maybe I wrote this thing on a forum post or whatever, but it didn't really affect the bottom line. People stuck to their subscription, um, with world of work or with League of legends, right? You share something and people might lose faith in the entire development team, um, And that's because we were all so open and so visible about not only what we did, but the reasoning behind it. So I've, I'm kind of losing the thread here, but um, you know, um, I really worked with some great guys. Uh, you know, Ryan Scott is one of them, another guy named Brandon, um, and uh, who's on the QA team, and just was really great at like helping me connect with like the other aspects of development and uh, teaching, just like pointing out little communication flaws. And a guy named Jerry Przeczka, who literally like night and day transformed my own awareness of how how I interacted and communicated with people affected them on a day to day basis right when you're the small guy you're in a big company you think like ah, this and this and this and everyone's just like yeah okay alex whatever fine do you want to go implement that go try it if it's good we'll put it in if it's not whatever
1: <laughs> what? alex first of all this is a whole thing is going to be super fascinating to millions sure. of world of warcraft and league players out there because they just got a window to the behind the scenes oh. that, that they probably didn't know about <laughs> before so so, I don't know, maybe gird yourself for that, but uh, <sighs> you're used to it, I think. The the interesting thing you were talking about in the economy of League of mm. Legends, though, I, I think is super fascinating, is there's a few ways... Here's how I think of some of these economic factors, and and I'm going to just give my view of oh, it, yeah, which I is not it. informed by your much greater experience actually working on okay. the game, but like, there's the time economy of Le- League mm. of Legends, which sort of could fit around something that was an obsessive hobby like World yes. of Warcraft, and, but you could opt into being that obsessive with League as well if you mm. wanted to. And of course, some people did and became super competitive esports players. The other aspect of the economy is like, what are those things that you buy in the economy? And today, when we look at a lot yeah. of the free-to-play games, the real emphasis is on the quote-unquote utility of the object, right? Mm. So in my mind, there's a, there's a couple of really big forces that that help a player determine what they're willing to pay for it one is utility another is just affinity which may have no practical utility value in the game actually the game i'm most proud of from my own career star trek timelines it was actually all about affinity we had like 700 plus characters in this game yeah Long story short, you didn't need 700 characters to succeed at this game. There's sort of a core set that if you had them, you could do pretty well. But we had lots and lots of players who would amass really big collections just because they liked those characters or they wanted every version of Picard because that was their favorite captain. So so another factor is scarcity, which is important in certain kinds of economies. Here, there's no scarcity. There's no utility. So it's pure Mm. affinity. So that's my read on it. First of all. What do you think of that model? But also, how did you think of the economy economy of League? and, And if affinity was important there, how did you create that affinity for enough players that it could actually employ the
0: thousands and thousands of people that Riot ended up having? Oh, man, that model. Uh, that's a love with the direction of your questions. Yeah. You know, it can't, <laughs> a lot of that I can't take personal responsibility for. Right. I was there for a lot of the conversations when Cadwell talked about, like, what is RP? What is um, what is the uh, I forgot what they were called before? Right. The the status points, the uh, points you would build up to buy, unlock characters for free to play. You play it long mm-hmm. enough, you get a new character um so there's a couple of things um one was that the creative direction of the game pivoted right it was like this is not a character for everybody but sorry not everybody's character but a character for everybody right that was step one the second was um if the gameplay mechanics are good but the theme is not there are other themes that will appeal to people who will like those gameplay mechanics right the guy who wants who doesn't like you know explorer boy but loves um you know link and wants a green shirt and blonde hair on ezreal right or someone who just wants to be super future sci-fi dude and you make that super cool legendary cyberpunk skin um and so that's i think a lot of what the affinity stuff comes from is like how do you sell that how do you make it exciting how do you put people into that alternate world even though the core game itself is really an arena of people going in and fighting. Um, And so a lot of that affinity, I would say, came from uh, the narrative design team, right? Their ability Mm -hmm. to create cohesive worlds. Um, And back before they had the ability to do this with fancy skins and highly sold art and cinematics and all these tools they employ now, they did it with character um, portrayals, right? They did it with blocks of text that told you a little bit about the inner workings of that character, some of their past or the things that were unknown about them. Right, and they made it intriguing and interesting, even if those some of those stories didn't last into the great marvel reboot that you know uh riot has now with their new um visual universe right um and uh I think that if you look at things like like udir or not udir um. Actually, is a great example of literally a homeless man who channels the spirits of animals into this wild beast master, right, that is incredibly inspirational in Legends of Runeterra and is super well sold by a theme. It's night and day, right? And a lot of it was just, you know, um, have you ever heard the saying, there's no human who builds a house, but almost any human can put down a brick? And some people can put Mm. bricks down long enough to build a house. Narrative design and theme development and the creative creative teams, both on art, story, and and gameplay, right, were in that sort of state. They built one brick at a time and kept building up so that here's our hut, here's our house, here's a castle now, right? And kept those lessons generation to generation in such a way that we see all this iteration leading to success in the long term. Um, And um, You know, it's so hard because you're asking, like, what is the magic sauce? The magic sauce is a whole lot of people's (laughs) input, uh, well refined by people over time and making a lot of mistakes. Urgot was thoroughly unappealing. The new battle death machine, you know, with blades that pop open and pull someone in guillotine style, still not super appealing. But to those people who loved that character for what weird craftiness he had before, it's right on the mark for that machine horror fantasy, right? um and so i think well again shots
1: shots on goal right so exactly you you had the space to make the mistakes like
0: this is kind of a recurring theme yeah and like each skin was a lesson right they made this green skin for Zareth, who was a character that i reworked right and it was like the only people who bought it were the people who wanted it because green is harder to see on green grass so the competitive advantage was that it was harder to see um but then you have other ones that were laid on that were like selling this desert fantasy right this um pharaohic, you know entombment right super theme hitting for all the people who loved egyptian stuff all right great well, they came in there yeah. they had their moment of expression the laser beam was now a blast of sand and you know they could put their own fantasy and story behind it and I, you know that i think that's the answer they leaned into player stories rather than just the character stories right like there's one example I can think of where, you know, Rengar and Kazix, right? These two predator and alien, you know, uh, representatives go in and they want to fight each other and whoever gets five kills each other first wins some trophy, right? That was like a character narrative in the game and it was really cool. But for the most part, the stories that players tell are: I got into the, the dragon pit and I flashed over and I smote it the last second, and then my t- I died but my team took the buff and then won the team fight, and then we managed to rush all the way down, even though we'd lost all of our towers the enemy ne- nexus, and take it down, and oh my god, it was down to two hits, and then our Kassadin blinked to the other side three times and auto-attacked it and tore it down, and it was the best match ever, even though it was an absolute disaster for the first 15 minutes. And letting those narrative moments right whether it's uh, like actually i think a big mistake um let me tell you about a mistake in some of the skin development right for -hmm. a long time they pushed back on anything anime referential anything that was like you know um softer fantasies like um you know uh sailor moonish type stuff right they were like oh whatever it was a lot through a lot of the lens of the dudes you know who were in charge of skins at that point like oh this doesn't resonate with me why would we ever make this um and then they eventually went and made that line years later down the road it was one of their biggest skin lines ever right <laughs> um because that fantasy that moment that idea of being some being these characters being a moment of power and being on a team is exactly what Sailor Moon was about. Here's me and my team, and we're going down and we're kicking ass, right? Um, and so I think, like you said, it's about those stories that the players tell each other together. We're all gonna dress up in costume together. We're all gonna go and fight together. We're all gonna go in and lose together. And those team fantasies, those team stories, and those individual moments of heroism when you were the Master ye with 30 kills and you managed to run down the enemy base, kill the enemy team, and finish it, right? or the person who's like, "Oh, I put the shield on the master E when he was at 1 hit point. I made it so he lived. He doesn't see that, but I know that I was the real hero that day." <laughs> right. Those are the stories that actually made the made the game successful.
1: Interesting. So really paying close close attention to the way the players are conceiving of their experience in the game and the tor- stories yeah. they're telling each other and then supporting that. Yeah. Was our means of creating affinity yeah. Interesting. So we went from the world of subscription MMORPGs. I called it winner take all. There's certain really super yeah. notable games, especially in the East, in the East mm. for big games that people don't hear about so much here. Like yeah, yeah. lineage and whatnot, of course, like so the Guild called Wars, called Guild Final Wars
0: Fantasy 2, 14, I think is another one. Did, did, okay. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely endured.
1: Yeah. And then the whole emergence of free to play, would which League of Legends was a huge part of. Actually, games like Guild Wars 2 took the MMORPG model and used a free-to-play system, I think kind of inspired off of stuff like that, that yeah. they were able to achieve a lot of sustainability. But now we're going into this whole era of all kinds of new business models, some mm. of which are are super controversial. I even hesitate to say them because people suddenly tune out and they, they yeah. press the stop button at this moment. And we're not here to talk about it per se, but sure. like... These more blockchain-based mechanisms where people are going to quote-unquote mm-hmm. own an asset, and maybe there's even these concepts around interoperability and games are going to work with each other. Mm. That's like one whole chunk that you can definitely find a lot of emotion around whether that's yeah. good or bad for any number of reasons. Then you've got like the you know, the subscription
0: arcade format is another mm-hmm.
1: whole one, which I think is super interesting uh, That's in that.
0: What- yeah, and that's when we dealt with on Ori, right? Ori 2, um, you know, the team had to basically grapple with the fact that the game was both going to be released as a single-purchase product and also be released on um, the the Xbox Game Pass, right? Um, and the How question, do you balance that? Whew, that's hard, right? And a lot of that, um, that, was call, that was a tough call for uh, Gennady and Thomas, just straight up, right? Because, um, you know, when... Uh, I don't know how much I can say, but basically when the money was running out on Ori 2, right, it was like, well, we'll give you more, but it's going on Game Pass, right? Maybe the negotiations went differently than that, but that's what it felt like, right, as a person who wasn't in the room. Um, we've got a solution for you. Yeah, we've got a solution for you. You guys are going to get the runway. You need to wrap it up, but uh, here's the price. Um and again, maybe that's not even fair. Right. I wasn't in the room. So mm-hmm. um, but uh, that led to a lot of consternation. Right. Especially for a team who's like, hey, their investment, the revenue, their, the you know, as an indie team, a lot of your payment isn't just the salary you often get really poor salaries as an indie team based on the fact that you've got a stake in the final product. Right. So that was a lot of concerns. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, did it change our game model? Did we have to change what content was available? Did we have to limit certain areas to be like, you have, you get the game, but then you have to DLC. It It was a big controversial discussion at one point. Would we lock away certain zones? Um, the answer we decided was no, we're just going to make the product. We're going to stick to the box product and just, you know, trust in the process here. Um, And uh, what was interesting was actually the numbers in the end, right? And it turned out that while the majority of the money came from, sure enough, the box sales, right, Uh, the Game Pass got most of the people who came in and took a look at the game. And it brought in mm-hmm. people who would never have sat down and thrown the $20 on the table to just straight up buy a side-scrolling platformer, right? And so we ended up building in a new audience and a new series of people who had trust mm-hmm. in the company, the platform, and the product, right? And that's a big deal when, you're a, when you look at a company not as a single product. Like, Ori1 was a single product, right? It was like, here we go. Boom. This is make it or break it. But now, okay, if we're going to do many games, what does that mean for the organization, Um, And things that build trust and intrigue people are really important when you have more ideas down the road, right? So um, it's interesting, right? Because that also leads into the, well, how do developers in that situation get compensated? Do they need to charge more? Do they have to have better salaries because they know that backend might not exist? Or is it something, for example, there was a lot of a push at some point, like putting in DLC for a game like Ori, right? Didn't Mm -hmm. quite make sense at the end of the day, but... You know it makes sense that if you have sure you play the core game here's the core package but you can unlock additional content if you like this game from the developers is kind of a natural progression i think from that semi-subscription model right like here's the core game it's not free to play but it might as well be free to play and here's something if you want to give back to the developers and i think we'll see more of that as these subscription models kick in um But then the knob starts to get even more screwy, right? As we then turn the dial past free and start asking, can people get paid for playing games? And I remember this, it goes back as far as Castle Doctrine. Do you remember Castle Doctrine?
1: Tell me about Castle Doctrine. Okay,
0: so Castle Doctrine was... I'm not sure what you're talking about. All right, Castle Doctrine was the first play to get paid game that I, hmm. I i interact with anyways and it was really simple everyone could buy the game for one dollar and then they would put a thousand dollars in a chest somewhere in this game and if you went in and you opened the chest you would get the thousand dollars but in order to keep it you had to protect it and so everyone the game of it was basically you built a little house with traps and puzzles hmm. and you had to be like mario maker go in and beat your own traps to prove there was a solution And then put however much money you wanted to put in your safe into your safe. And so the idea was at the end of the season, whatever cash was left you in your safe, you would take home. It would actually send you a check for the thousand dollars. And obviously they sold many more than a thousand copies. But um, it was this idea that there is actually something of substantial value and how well you play the game and how well you engage with the game determines that the return on your, your investment in the game. And now we're trying, They were seeing the, the eruption of models, which is like, hey, um, well, you know, we remember World of Warcraft and the mass amount of work we put in stopping gold farmers, right? You remember gold farming, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, of course. IGE. Yeah. yeah. And um, we put in. Your open
1: economy game was buying gold from uh, IGE. And yeah. some and guy would pop into
0: your zone and hand you some gold. Yeah. and so you that, could buy them out. It was, a, it was a, I remember the same thing, but with Stones of Jordan, literally I work with Kevin Jordan mm-hmm, now, but sure. Stones of Jordan cool. and Diablo 2. Um, and so uh, I don't want to go to the Diablo auction house. That's like a two hour conversation right there. Uh, but, yeah. um, you know, it's the question of is if there's an economy, can you let people pay for other players time at a fundamental level? Is that okay? Is there a business model where that works? Um, and I think a lot of people are trying to explore that space, and we've seen that, WoW did that, where you could buy gold from other players, right? You could basically say, here is a month of free subscription in exchange for this much gold, and then they could resell those tokens to friends who needed them, or to someone else for $15 instead of the 20 you paid for it or whatever, right? Um, and so even though these things feel like they're new and different, um, the truth is people have been experimenting with them for a long time. It's just now they're trying to put them at the forefront of the games and say, is this something players will accept or not? And is, it, is, is a person's time worth respecting and codifying in a way that we give them you know a proof of time spent that then they can exchange with someone else who that proof it matters more to them than the money that they spent on getting it um right. and you know and that's that's the new world we're living in right now it doesn't matter whether it's blockchain it doesn't matter whether it's buying wow subscription tokens it doesn't matter whether it's eve online you know monthly subscriptions uh credits revive credits whatever it is this has been going on it's just now being put at the center of games so uh, now we're looking at the question of, um, hey, uh, is a person's time actually worth more than the money spent to, um, you know, run the service that they're on? And if that's true, then maybe there's some way of showing respect for that or at least recognizing in a way that you can, you know, if, if, if someone goes in and they do a really hard task on an MMO, right, and they farm up like logs or trees or resources or or is there any reason they can't exchange that with someone else for real money, right? That's real money trading. And I, I think that for Western audiences that is smacked really hard because we've had this long experience of people with a lot of money just flaunting power over you, right? Um, And I think we're trying to see is that, does that hold up in the digital space or not? Or does it not? Um, Actually, are there ways of limiting that? Like maybe you can make some purchases, but not too many purchases in a space. And just respect the fact that, hey, a son can sit and play the game all summer by himself and dad wants to be able to sit down, play with his son at the same level in the same space and spend time together with his son and is happy to spend 20 bucks, 30 bucks right to level a character or get gear or whatever so that he can be playing and being part of that journey with his kid uh, throughout a game experience. And I, I think that's a valid question, even if this can be taken to extreme you know, and dangerous positions. That Now we're in the question of, is play to earn tokens, money, gold, whatever, a valid economic model? And frankly, I don't know, right? It might pan out. It might hit a dud. It might actually be unsustainable. Um, but I don't think we're going to be getting in a world where not recognizing the disparity of free time between the people who... Want to just be in these social spaces, playing with their kids, playing with other people and feeling like they're part of the community is actually more important than the work they did to get, you know, this specific item or this specific character. Um, And yeah, that's where I'm really curious to see where things evolve next. Now, the whole thing about, you know, uh, creating content, I think that's going to be the next big, interesting spike can there be an incentive model for user generated content that encourages quality that encourages people to make really awesome experiences and present those experiences to audiences right and then you're in the roblox space right where people are making games or mini games people want to go in and spend their 10 cent token to play a roblox game and they have a great time doing it. That's great, and then all of these people who were these small-time creators or didn't have development degrees or didn't have the opportunity to build a mega-budget game can go through, make a Roblox level, and then suddenly be able to pay their bills while making Roblox levels or pay for college, right? To me, that's super exciting and super inspiring. And as someone whose literal career is exists because he got lucky that the mod he made was seen by someone and given visibility, I want others to be able to take that journey, too. And so I really love this, the potential for user generated content to really take off. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, well, if I zoom back the camera lens on this definition of play to earn, like right now it has a very specific meaning. It's these blockchain games with some kind of, you know, either you power level a character and resell it later and there's speculative markets around it or there's some kind of yield farming piece to it. It's mm-hmm. con- that to me though is a very narrow definition of what play to earn yep. even should be because play to earn actually should include esports and all the people who do live streaming of gameplay and are earning yep. money showing how they play like these are people literally mm. you know earning yeah. from their play and then if you expand it to the stuff you were just talked about it's it's sort of this interesting oh. blending yeah. of like who's a designer who's a creator of the game versus who's a player and what do they contribute. So are they contributing stories and content and levels and models? I think as these tools get more and more accessible to people, Roblox is an example of that. But Roblox is is sort of just the biggest current example of that. There's going to be a lot of other opportunities to build off of games, to expand the ecosystem of games. And is that play to earn? Is that play to create? Like, I don't know what the terms are going to be, but... I I guess the thing I always try to urge people is to approach this stuff with that word we were using earlier, a little bit of humility, because it's very easy to look at certain games and Mm. the communities of those games and say, well, that game's not for me. And by the way, I don't want that to be what the whole world of gaming is like. First of all, this is a pretty big industry. No one game is going to take off like wildfire and define literally the whole industry of gameplay. There's going to be a lot of different... Yeah, there's going to be a lot of business
0: models. Yeah, there. What was that? What was that? Ready player one. What was that novel? The Oasis? Yeah, like the Oasis is not never going to happen, right? There is no universal Oasis, right? That is going to eat everything. But there are going to be our customized, interesting experiences where different people want to engage with.
1: Yeah, I mean, my. My message that I want to share with people is like, I know people that are working in some of these newer business models. A lot of these people are some of the smartest people I've ever met in my whole life. And I wouldn't say that they're building things to be clones of, let's say, an existing mm-hmm. anything in the market. And they're really looking to figure out what are the ways we bring creativity into it? How are the ways to adapt this business model to something that actually encourages a different kind of gameplay, which is interesting? I don't know what form it's going to take and no one can predict the winners here, but... I just think everybody should approach this with curiosity and humility and and not assume that we know what all players in the world want or that, you know, what game designs are even going to be good. Like, you got to go do the experiment. You have to try things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think tooling is so incredibly important, right? I actually look at VR right now as an example of where, um, for whatever reason, the incentives are misaligned right now, right? We've got, um, you know, uh, basically... What, was, what used to be called Pacific Bay, right, which is now um, Oculus, right, which has some of the best visuals. We've got, uh, you know, Valve, which has some of the best content. And we've got another company which has some of the best peripherals, right. But you, you need to bring all three pieces of the Triforce, content, presentation, and um uh, haptics right together for vr to ever actually take off until we have an incentive alignment model that says hey it doesn't matter where these pieces come from we don't care who invents the xbox 360 controller of the next generation which shaped every controller after it right um or even the super nintendo controller whatever you get it the point is until we have that we don't have that common groundwork that common framework to build the next generation of games on And so that's what a lot of the things we're seeing all over the place, whether it's metaverse, whether it's VR, whether it's AR, is people just trying to push the boundaries of each of these things in one little way and discover one little gem that they can bring back together to create what will eventually be one of these really impressive, solid and stable platforms for everyone to begin using.
1: So let's let people innovate, right? Let's let them push the frontiers and try things. And that's what the metaverse is all about. And this is been building the metaverse, which we didn't even use that word until the very end in the very beginning. But to me, the i I just have different definitions for things than anybody else Mm. has. Like I had defined play to earn the way we talked about a little bit earlier. I think of the metaverse as first and foremost, like the creative space of interaction and socialization and the technology is just the stuff we put around it to enable that. Uh but the metaverse has been with us and we're we're continuing to build it. And Alex, I'm so grateful for you spending all this time with us to talk about the journey through World of Warcraft, to League of Legends, to the games that yeah. you're working on now and these new models. I hope yeah. everybody really finds it super fascinating and also inspirational, whether you are someone thinking about being a game designer and you want to get into a game company. There you go. Alex has shared his story of a way you can do that. Yeah. Or if you're a game studio, looking about thinking about your next game. Like, I think you should really get excited by the infinite potential to just, like, take advantage of those new platforms, bring new content, bring new types of technologies to the mix, experiment with new business models. Like, this is such an incredible inventive and creative ecosystem that we all get to play in.
0: Yeah, I, I use the term we're in this era of creative chaos right now, mm-hmm. right? We've got these pieces of order that are the AAAs and these other foundational platforms for Steam and all this we're building we've, that we are used to being around. But there's this just sea of opportunity and possibility. But it requires people to be able to take risks and try things and do things that others wouldn't have imagined before and make mistakes and discover little bits of things at a time. And if, if that's the thing that appeals to if you, lean into uncertainty and revel in it, Lean into that space. If not, that's okay too. Lots of room for people to make amazing, amazing, highly polished experiences that are trustworthy and familiar. Mm-hmm. So don't feel bad about which side of the fence you feel on. Don't feel like you've got to be doing mm-hmm. the new hotness or you've got to be doing the old classic thing. There's, there's potential for both. Potentially mm-hmm. even change sides and flip around and explore. And if that's one lesson I can say that's been, that's been really important to me is that my own personal growth has been about examining who I thought I was, questioning it, and then pushing the back on those boundaries a little bit at a time to discover what else was who I am and what I enjoy doing and how I like to work. I started out thinking I was always going to be a programmer, and then I would always be a translator, and then I was going to be this hotshot designer. And now I've discovered our love for management and empowering others and seeing them succeed, right? That led to my consulting. And that, and now I'm moving on to teaching, right? Where I want to like help the next generation of designers lift themselves up out of the lessons that I've gotten to learn through blood, sweat and tears and make really cool shit. So in 20 years when I'm not able to keep making this stuff anymore, I've got great games to play with my kids.
1: I love it. And if people want to learn more about the work you do, the teaching, the design consulting, all that stuff, where where do they find you, Alex?
0: Oh, man. Uh, Yeah. So um, first off is hit me up on social media. Uh, All of it is Zelnath at X-E-L-N-A-T-H. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about either consulting for your business or um, learning about, you know, the game design philosophies that have helped me really make these amazing games even better, um, that would be at GameDesignSkill.com at, or if you'd like it to write it out, Game Designs, plural, Kill, GameDesignsKill.com. Um, that is actually an intentional double entendre because <laughs> I remember the day. I'll, keep, I'll give you short, John, because I know you're <laughs> rapping here. I remember the day we came in, we found out the very first person uh, had perished uh, in a land center playing World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. And Pardo grabbed all of us and said, guys, we just need to remember this individual's choices may not be on us, but it is on us to make sure that we don't lean into this and push people to go even further. And so I always try to mm-hmm. remember said, that skill means respecting the fact that you have people's actual lives and free times in your hand and respecting that balance. Anyways, so it's GameDesignSkill.com. You can check out our courses. Uh, I've got a blog and a podcast, which, uh, John, you're going to be featuring on pretty soon. And uh, looking forward to seeing how that conversation goes. I think we're going to have a little bit of a debate.
1: Oh, excellent. I'm looking forward to it. And if you are interested in more conversations like this, then by all means, subscribe down below here and you'll get more stuff like this. I'm having a few conversations like this every month and talking about the metaverse and game development and this creative space for innovation immersive worlds virtual worlds virtual economies that's what we talk about here and we would love you to tune in hear more of them listen to the podcast download the audio version or by the way we talked about how hard it is to create content and build all that back-end stuff that gets in the way of making a game that's what my company beamable So check us out at BML.com. We talked about that in the conversation as well. But thanks, Alex. This has been a really awesome conversation. We covered so much. I know that we're going to be pulling out a whole bunch of sound bites here and and sharing it with people to inspire them to, to build great products. So thanks for being
0: on. Thanks for the opportunity, John. Have a great day.